Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. John Bruton is a former Fine Gael leader and Taoiseach who became politically active in the mid-1960s. John Bruton, former Taoiseach, former Fine Gael leader and holder of several ministries. Our, our general theme or topic is the subject of civil war politics. Now, is it a term that you're comfortable with? It's not, I think, historically accurate because there's more to politics, yeah, even in the 20s, and to the people taking part in politics that, than the people who took part in the civil war. There was democratic politics in Ireland from the time of Daniel O'Connell forward. Uh, it was constitutional politics, no violence was used. And they were building towards a peaceful uh, achievement of independence without people having to die. And the people who were involved in that political movement continued on in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Many of them were in uh, Common Gael, Fine Gael, but some of them were in the National Centre Party, the National League. Some of them were in Fianna Fáil, I think even um, one of the Attorney Generals, Mr De Valera, had, had been an Irish party candidate. So to say that the only politics, if you like, were pro-treaty and anti-treaty isn't historically accurate. I think it's important to be accurate um, in describing things historically because the way we look at history influences what we do today. So where do you see your own political um, antecedents? I would identify with uh, the non-violent constitutional nationalist tradition of Parnell, John Redmond and John Dillon. And as you know, John Dillon's son was one of the leaders of Fine Gael, James Dillon. I, I would identify with that for not, not just for emotional reasons, but for intellectual and moral reasons. I think killing is very bad. I don't like people to die. And pursuing politics where the killing of people is one of the methods to use is not something I would approve of and I would want to be associated with if I can avoid it. So was the War of Independence unnecessary then in your view? Well, I have argued that it was in the sense that eventually if we pursued the Home Rule path, and Home Rule was on the statute book in, in 1914. It didn't come into effect until the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, but it then was too late, if you like, because all the violence had occurred. If there hadn't been violence, I think we would have evolved towards independence without violence. Now, the majority of people in Ireland take a different view, and I respect the majority as a Democrat, but I, I have my own view. You gave expression to the uh, high regard in which you hold some of those people um, who you mentioned earlier. When you became Taoiseach, wouldn't that be true? That is absolutely correct. I, I um, had the privilege of putting up a portrait in my office and uh, where previously all of the pictures were of people who had, should we say, been on the, 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 the war of independence uh, 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 scene. Um, I chose to put up John Redmond, who at the time uh, was not as well regarded as he is now, uh, I think, by historians and by people who studied it. And uh, if I have contributed in any way to rehabilitating constitutional nationalism without denigrating other traditions, I'm very happy with that. Who else did you put up there? Sean Lamass, because uh, Sean Lamass was very 
very constructive. Uh, now, admittedly, he introduced protectionism in the 30s, uh, which, should we say, people were not entirely happy with, particularly in the agricultural community. But in the 19, late 1950s, he removed it. And, you know, it takes a good man to reverse oneself, and he did, and that I admired. I other, also, um, W.T. Cosgrave, a, a great man, and uh, General Mackay. And what about Michael Collins? Uh, how, how would he stand in your own view and your, your reflections? Well, I, I, Michael, Michael Collins is obviously a very effective, very intelligent man, but as I've said, I have some reservations about the use of violence. He, he seemed, though, as somebody who is the ultimate Fine Gael hero, is he not? He is. Um, on the other hand, Fine Gael came into being in 1933. Michael Collins wasn't alive in 1933. So, I mean, th th that's, you know, people in Fine Gael are perfectly entitled to identify with whoever they want. Uh, I identify with other traditions uh, in the party, including, as I've said, the constructive work of Cosgrave and others, as well as the earlier work of Redmond. How do you characterise the differences, I suppose they've changed down the decades, the differences between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? It's a subtle job to try <laughs> and identify that. I think the, rather than emphasising differences, I'd first emphasise the fact that the two parties complement one another. Um, both of them have built the institutions of the state. The first and most important institution of the state was the treaty. That is, if you like, a common and Gael achievement. Uh, and there, by extension, Fine Gael, who inherited most of the Fine Gael, the common and Gael people. But the other big achievement that constitutionalised this state was the Constitution of 1937, which, interestingly enough, was the work of Eamon de Valera, with the aid of Mr. Hearn, who was from Watford, who was known as John Redmond's boy orator. He was a brilliant guy. He didn't have a political career because the Redmondites were wiped out politically. And he went into the army uh, as a legal advisor. And de Valera heard about him and took him on to help him in the drafting of the Constitution. Now, it was de Valera's Constitution. De Valera is the man who did all the political work and most of the actual work. But it is significant that it was, wasn't just a one-person, one-party achievement. There was also this other element uh, of it. And I think, if you like, the arguments in the early part of the life of this state were about legitimacy. What was the legitimate authority upon which you could found a state? In the case of the treaty, it provided legitimacy because it was an international treaty, um, which had been approved by Dáil Éireann. But some of the people who were anti-treaty objected to that and said, well, it should have been approved by the Irish people. Now, if you tried to have a referendum before you had the, a treaty, it wouldn't have been very practical, shall we say, because <laughs> there was a war on. So there was a problem, and the problem was solved in 1937 by the 1937 Constitution. Because in 1937, Mr. de Valera, being in government, was able to not just draft a constitution, 
but in a peaceful country, he could have a referendum. So you have this superior legitimacy, if you like, coming from the people rather than just from an international treaty and a dull resolution. And I, I, I think, you know, the two parties complemented one another. You asked earlier if there's about differences, which I don't particularly want to emphasise, but I suppose you could say that Finnegale is slightly more internationalist which in, explains to some degree its interest in EU matters from an earlier period. Whereas Fianna Fáil is very slightly, or has been, more nationalist, which is, and the two, those two things, you need both in any useful political system, and I, 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 I'm not criticising neither here. You were elected, I think, at the age of 22 in 1969. Fine Gael were again consigned to opposition, but then in 1973, after 16 years of unbroken Fianna Fáil governance, there was a coalition arrangement between Fine Gael and Labour. You were part of that uh, as a parliamentary secretary. Uh, what are your reflections on that? How do you remember that time? Well, actually, the strange thing is in 1969, I think, uh, from memory, Finnegan and Labour got more votes than they got in 73, first preferences. But in the absence of a coalition transfer arrangement, we weren't able to get a majority. So I think both parties sort of drew certain conclusions from that, so that by 1973, Mr Cosgrave and Liam Cosgrave and Brendan Corish were able to put uh, an agreement together, and that was what enabled us to form a government. I think it was a great achievement uh, and something obviously I, I was to become a beneficiary of. Then you went out of power, there was the famous Fianna Fáil Manifesto of 1977. You got back in in 1981. What, what do you remember about those times? I mean, like there were, there, there were some pretty strong, one could use the word bitter exchanges uh, in the Dáil. I mean, say beginning with um, Charles Hockey's election as, as leader of Fianna Fáil. Uh, there were. I um, think that, I have to say, that I think Charlie Hawley was not the ideal candidate to be the Taoiseach. Um, not just because of things he was accused of, but also because of his rather combative attitude. One of the biggest challenge we had from the 1970s on was finding a way of reducing and eliminating violence in Northern Ireland. Now, a combative attitude towards our fellow Irish people who are Unionist and British in allegiance is not an attitude that would cohere towards peace. And I felt his approach would have been uh, not helpful. On the economy, uh, the, 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 Mr. Hawhey was seen, I think, as a bogeyman. Was he a godsend to Fine Gael in campaigning terms, uh, both on the economy and Northern Ireland? Well, certainly on the economy, uh, he wasn't a godsend in the sense that he left us with an appalling economic situation in 1981, when I became Minister for Finance. Um, let us recall that from 1979 on, he had been saying that we needed to do something to restrict public spending and live with our, in our means. But he didn't do it. And that's what, this was at a time when interest rates, and everyone knew this, were rising internationally and rising very rapidly. So if you're already heavily indebted, 
which we were as a result of the 1977 manifesto, um, the last thing you should be doing would be spending more money and borrowing more at even ever higher interest rates. But that's what he allowed to happen uh, between when he took over as Taoiseach and when he lost the election in 1981. So we were faced, um, I was Minister Flanscar, Fitzgerald was the Taoiseach, uh, we were faced with an emergency situation. Uh, we didn't have a loyal majority, everybody knew that, but we dealt with the situation as best we could in the July budget of 1981. That was a budget prepared within six weeks, which passed at all. We then had to prepare a budget for the following year, knowing we didn't have a majority, as I said. Obviously, we had a choice. We could have tried to negotiate a budget that would pass with everybody, and of course, it wouldn't have done the job that needed to be done. Or we could put before the people and the doll a budget that was, in our conviction, the sort of budget the country needed. And that's what we did. Now, the doll didn't vote for it in, 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 19, in the beginning of 1981. Then Mr Hoy came back into office, tried to introduce a budget himself. That didn't go anywhere. So that by the end of the year, the people had, had been persuaded, if you like, that the approach we were taking was right and we were able to get a, a, a budget that was necessary through. But those years from 1982, when you came back with the majority, working with the Labour Party, up to 1987, would you describe those as successful? I know you weren't Minister for Finance for the most of that period, but in regard to getting to grips with the economic crisis? Well, you can never do just one thing in politics. You have to do several things at the same time. We did deal with the economic crisis to the, and the financial crisis to the extent that we could. Or that Labour would let you? That we could as a government collectively, Labour and Fine Gael. We did all we could. And I think we deserve credit for that. But we also tried to do other things as well. I think one of the things that was particularly noteworthy was that we maintained social welfare rates. It's important to say that the largest increase in pension in the history of the state was in the budget of 1981 that I introduced, 25%. Now that has been a platform under pensions ever since. And I think that plus similar uh, provisions in regard to unemployment benefit, disability benefit and so forth, helped preserve social peace in Ireland in circumstances where it mightn't have been preserved if we'd taken strictly the financial approach. So I think that's, um, that's something that needs to be put in the, in the balance. And I feel, I have to say, that it doesn't get as much attention from those who make quick comments than as it deserves to get. Arguably, the outstanding achievement of that government was the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985. How important was that? I think it was very important in the sense that it created a structure for um, understanding of the problem that was mutually held by both the British and Irish governments. They had analysed the problems together and Gareth Fitzgerald and Peter Barry are the people who did this, uh, along with Geoffrey um, um, Howe and Mrs Thatcher and I think Douglas Hurd. Uh, that was a huge thing because it, it if you have an understanding between the two governments, you can really try to get progress. And we can probably see that more clearly 
in 2022 than we could at any time since then, because we now have our relations that are not good between Britain and Ireland, and we see all the problems that flow from that. So to have been able to do that, um, as Garrett uh, and Peter did, was a tremendous. It also created an incentive for uh, unionists to try to find another way forward to, if you like, deal with their nationalist uh, neighbours as a, if you like, substitute for having Dublin involved that they would at least be dealing with people who are living maybe only a mile or two away who are living in the same cities and towns as themselves. And that, I think, was helped uh, Jim Molyneux and others towards eventually seeing the need for, um, for, for a new approach, which was brought to fruition um, initially in 1993 in the Downing Street Declaration negotiated by Albert Reynolds and John Major, which, to my mind, is the foundation of everything that happened subsequently. Um, but in a way, it couldn't have happened without the Anglo-Irish Agreement. You know, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement without David Trimble, as others have said. So there's, there, you know, one thing leads to another. Since we are talking about Northern Ireland, let, let's continue and talk about your own period as, as Taoiseach and maybe come back a little later to, to you know, your, how you became to Taoiseach and how you found uh, the, the duties or the demands and the burdens of office. Um, you, you came in as Taoiseach in extraordinary circumstances after a coalition between Labour and Fianna Fáil fell apart uh, in late 1994. Now, at that stage, uh, the, the, there was ceasefires on both sides, Republican and Loyalist, um, and you were working with uh, John Major on the framework document and so forth. Talk us through that period, as how, you, how you went about that. Well, I, I'd have to say, first of all, that a lot of the legwork was done by Dick Spring uh, in the Department of Foreign Affairs, and we worked well together. Um, some might have been surprised. I wasn't because we'd been talking before. Uh, he, we, we together were working to get this framework agreement, which was, if you like, a further elaboration of the Downing Street Declaration putting flesh on the bones, putting specific institutions in place. And I was very glad to be able to, um, to finalise that with John Major. Um, and it created, if you like, a, a mutual understanding, building on these previous mutual understandings to which I made reference. Um, now, obviously, this wasn't the only show in town. We had an issue about the durability of the IRA ceasefire. Now, the IRA was uh, an illegal army. It was an entity that existed contrary to Article 15 of the Irish Constitution to the extent that it held arms. So the decommissioning of arms was an Irish constitutional issue, just as much and even more so than it was an issue for unionists or for the British, because this entity existed in our state. And if you want to look at the 1937 constitution, which I referred to, or the 1922 constitution, they both say, and they're quite practical about that, you, you can only have one army in any state. You can't have two or three. And if you look at the history of uh, other countries which descended into fascism, I recently was looking at the history of Italy, 
Mussolini was elected to power and initially didn't impose uh, anything very extreme. But he had these private groups going around who were armed. And between 1922 and 1924, they terrorised the opposition. You probably are familiar with people they killed and all of that. And that created the conditions for um, uh, fascism. Now, full fascism from 1924 on. Now, when we were... When the Free State Constitution was being drafted, when the 1937 Constitution was being drafted, the drafters of the Constitution were aware of those precedents and they wanted to make sure they didn't happen in Ireland. When I became Taoiseach, I was aware of the obligations that were placed on me as Taoiseach to uphold the Constitution, particularly in regard to the prohibition of private armies with arms. And this wasn't necessarily understood by everybody, shall we say. It wasn't understood by the opposition at the time in some cases. It wasn't understood by people uh, north of the border uh, who felt, oh, well, this is just a detail. Uh, yeah, know. but what about the real politique of the situation? This is that... real politique, uh, Sean. The Constitution. Yes, but if you were to get to the situation where you had a functioning power-sharing arrangement in Northern Ireland, maybe things had to be finessed in such a way that there weren't absolutes required of the paramilitaries well, at you... a particular time. Okay. Well, when you look at how long it eventually took the IRA to disarm, I think you have to take a different view to that. If we were any softer at the beginning, they would never have disarmed, in my opinion, no. Uh, and there's no way of proving what they would have done because they're not going to tell us. And but was there a cause and effect between, say, your own and John Major's insistence and uh, Tom, uh, sorry, um, Pat Sir Patrick Mayhew's insistence as well, uh, that there had to be decommissioning and the decision of the IRA to break their ceasefire? I don't, I don't, I, you'd have to ask the IRA, and I don't know where you'll get them to give an interview to you. Um, but my approach to this was based on my understanding as the Taoiseach elected to fulfil that role by the Irish people to defend the provisions of the Irish Constitution. Obviously, the UK government would have been aware of what the Irish Constitution said, even though they don't have a written constitution themselves. And they would have known that for any self-respecting Irish government, there has to be only one army in the state. And if you want to go back to 1922, that was one of their concerns then too. So, I mean, th this is nothing that should surprise anybody. There was a, an infamous occasion, I think, during the election of 1997, where you got impatient with the reporter and made a derogatory reference to the peace process. Um, how damaging was that to you and to your own party? Well, I let others decide that. My, my view... The effing peace process, uh, I think. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I do remember, actually, believe it or not. Um, the, the position was that, I, I, obviously, language is very important. Uh, and if you're being asked the same question over and over and over and over again, there's always a risk that you say something ever so slightly different on the, the 25th time you're asked the same question that you did on the first, and then somebody says, aha, he's changed his position. Now, I wasn't changing my position, and I was impatient um, with being asked the same question over and over again. I didn't 
know I was being interviewed. Somebody had a camera on at the time, as far as I recall, and I didn't know they were recording me. I, 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 I was coming into some event and I, somebody said, oh, there's a camera over there. Are they going to ask you about X? And I said, I hope it's not about the, what you said. I mean, it didn't, it didn't mean anything, but people can make any judgment they want to make. Talk to me about your time as Taoiseach. Uh, you were there from 19, late 94, December 94 to uh, 1997. How do you reflect on that time? Very, with, with great happiness. I mean, I, I feel I did my duty. Uh, I enjoyed the privilege of working with very good people in the government. And um, we ran a good government. We had short meetings. We didn't exhaust people. Uh, we made decisions quickly. And I think we made good decisions generally. Uh, the economy was fairly sluggish when we took office. It was growing very rapidly when we were leaving office. Probably the biggest growth spurt in the history of the state. I'm, I don't have statistics to hand. Was in my the last year in office of that government. And at that time, we were coming from a period where the economy wasn't as good as it might have been. I'm not saying that our government is responsible for all of that, but if you look at the record, it was very important. And I say also, we, reserve, we preserve the peace of the state, we preserve the integrity of the state in regard to issues which we've been referring to earlier, in regard to no private armies. Were there lessons that you had learned and applied when you became Taoiseach based on your previous experience in coalition and working with uh, other parties? Yes, I think there were. I learned a lot. I mean, I, when you're um, a minister in a line ministry, you, you can afford to just say, well, this is what I think is right. And you hope that the government collectively will reach the right decision. Now, I probably was a bit too insistent on some of the things I thought was right. Either, not principally on my own behalf, but on behalf of what I thought was the view of a Fine Gael component in the government. And that, of course, caused troubles, problems for, some, for the Labour Party specifically. And I learned that that was unproductive, really, uh, and that you, one is better off trying to try and solve the problems earlier before you get them into the cabinet where very often with 15 people, even though it's a small number, it's hard to resolve things. So the lesson I learned um, was that you should try and compose the issues before you go to the cabinet. So we had a system of programme managers, which had been initiated under Labour, but we, I took it up enthusiastically and put it in place for Fine Gael, so that issues were cleared at a sort of semi-political level first. And then before any cabinet meeting, we would have a, 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 a meeting of the three party leaders. And if there was one, any issue that was difficult, and usually most of the issues, if there were any, were eliminated by then, we would discuss them briefly. And if one, even one of us said, well, we're not ready, or we're, my party is not ready, or we'd have to put that off for a week, we would it off for a week. And that meant that we had much more harmony in cabinet. Uh, and I, I think it was, it was good. How big a shock was it to you in 1992 when Dick Spring went into government with Albert Reynolds? It was a bit, 
It was a shock, I suppose, but in light of what he had said. But when actually, you know, when I look back at it and looked at the, the Doyle arithmetic, he didn't have too much choices. The Doyle arithmetic had changed by 1994 uh, because Fine had won a few by-elections. So suddenly what was a, a, arithmetically next to impossible in 1992 became possible in 1994. Tell, t tell us about the meeting that you had with Dick Spring after that election. I think it actually was in this hotel in the Shelburne. It was, yeah. Was it in this room? Yes. It was. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> I think they've changed the decor since. What, what happened? Well, we had um, an exchange of views, as they say. Uh, and, uh, well, it didn't come up with the outcome that I was hoping for. On the other hand, as I have explained a moment ago, um, he wasn't in a position that he could do what I thought he was able to do. And that was something I accepted. Uh, it was better to have that meeting in private than to be having it over the airwaves. And that I appreciate. He, he met me. And um, subsequently, uh, of course, as we know, I, I did express my, shall we say, lack of enthusiasm for the new government in the doll. Uh, on the other hand, we got on with business. Uh, and then in the doll after 1992, I set about working, learning from past experience again, with um, the two other opposition parties, with the Democratic left and the Progressive Democrats. And we met occasionally, which I think created conditions that wasn't consciously with that in mind, where at least one of those parties could compose, a, be part of a government that would, would feel comfortable with a government uh, which I was involved. I remember interviewing Peter Barry in the aftermath of that 92 election uh, on Morning Ireland. He said there was no way Fine Gael could have any dealings with Democratic left in government because of their previous associations with, with the official IRA uh, at a time when they were you know, members of Sinn Féin and official Sinn Féin and were various versions of them. But you changed your view on that. Yes. Well, I, 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 you say Peter Barry said it. I think I may have said it myself. I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I don't... <laughs> these are not things that I write down in a notebook to preserve. But I, I, certainly Peter Barry wouldn't have been the only one that had that view if, 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 if... But that was a view, I suppose, that derived from a rather limited view of history that we were taking, history of the democratic left. What had happened, and you know, I wouldn't have been particularly adept in sort of ideology of people, parties of the left. But gradually, I came to understand, subsequently, and Fine Gael came to understand as a whole, that in fact, through their analysis, the democratic left had completely changed their view in regard to, the, to violence. And of course, there was actually no problem by the time 1994 came for us participating with Democratic Left. So it was a, it was a learning experience on behalf of, behalf of Fine Gael. And, I, I, and I, I'm glad that we did it. I think it was right. Um, I, and I, I have to add, if you don't mind, that I found working with the Democratic Left in practice in government, and I think all of us who are in government, to be, have been a fantastic experience. They were wonderful colleagues. 
Could the same now not be said right now in the year 2022 about Sinn Féin as being potential colleagues in I, government? I don't think that they have undertaken the same sort of analysis at all. In fact, they have difficulty talking about in any sort of self-critical way about the killings that the IRA was involved in. Now, if they had undertaken a complete transformation, I think they would be queuing up to give interviews to you about how they renounce this and renounce that and regret the other and apologize for this. They haven't done that. You had a long career in Gael, as we were saying, uh, John Bruton, uh, being party leader, being Taoiseach, holding several key ministries. Um, and what's it like being leader of a party? Well, it's easier, believe it or not, when you're Taoiseach, <laughs> because you have a certain authority that comes from that, and the party, you know, will tend to career around you. Being leader of, of, of the opposition, or a party in opposition, is, to my opinion, for having done it, very difficult. Uh, for the following reasons. First of all, your own supporters expect you to be hammering the government all the time even when it may be, you know, OTT. Whereas the middle ground people expect you to be statesmanlike. And it's very difficult to be both at the same time. So it's a very difficult job. And I, 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 I found it a bit difficult. On the other hand, I was fortunate uh, in the colleagues I had that helped me and stood with me. One of the themes we've been looking at in this um series is the whole question of the, the, the attacks on party leaders at different times, or heaves, uh, to, to use the, the common word. You, you had two of those I think you had to deal with, one of which you were successful and the other not so. Uh, how were those? I think those? it was actually three. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, talk us through those. There were two that weren't successful and one that was. Talk us through those. Well, they're very they're difficult things, but they don't last forever. I think one has to acknowledge that in any business or democracy, that there, can, there has to be a mechanism for changes of personnel. And heaves, rough, and, rough as they are for the people heaved against or heaving, are a necessary part of the this, this system. Um, I didn't enjoy it. The ones, at least I didn't enjoy the ones, the one where I didn't succeed, but um, and I didn't enjoy the others either because they, they sort of create divisions. They put friend against friend and things like that. But there's nothing more to be said about it. Business is difficult. Politics is business. Politics is difficult. Any form of personnel change even in a small firm, can be difficult. Does Fine Gael, or did Fine Gael have an issue with loyalty uh, to, the, to, the, to the party leader? Um, Liam Cosgrove, before you, had similar difficulties, didn't he? I don't, I, I don't think there's any leader of Fine Gael who didn't have a problem. General O'Duffy was not, didn't stay very long as leader. Uh, <laughs> that may have been a very good thing. Uh, even W.T. Cosgrave, who was... A, you know, an outstanding statesman. Uh, there were people impatient with him. Uh, and then General Mulcahy was leader, but some in the party and others didn't want him to become Taoiseach, so he didn't become Taoiseach. He very selflessly stood back, but I would suggest that you know, there were reservations even then. There were a, 
believe reservations about Jack Costello when he was leader. Uh, James Dillon didn't have an absolutely plain sailing term as leader either. Uh, and, you know, Liam and Garrett, ha you know, had people who were not happy with them. So I don't feel I was in any way especially singled out for condign punishment. It's half a century ago now, this year, but Liam Cosgrave came very close to being deposed as leader until the tragedy of the Dublin bombs happened uh, and then the party swung behind him on the offences against the state legislation. Where were you on that one? I, unfortunately, from my point of view, looking back, I, I took the view that this was... Uh, the, the majority... What was the majority view, that this was not good legislation. Um, but I didn't take it, as far as I recall, any very prominent part in the discussion. And I was relieved when it, it came to a satisfactory conclusion because I, I think w, Liam Cosgrave was an excellent leader. It would have been a tragedy if he'd ceased to be leader. He was a very good Taoiseach. And uh, I, I'm delighted that he succeeded and I'm delighted that I was mistaken. Is it the case, though, that the leader of Fine Gael is subject almost to an ever-present threat or prospect of well, a leave. I, I don't know enough about other political parties, perhaps, to, uh, to say this for sure, but I have the feeling that every, every party, unless they're a party with some sort of Stalinist uh, substructure, uh, is going to have um, difficulties for their leader, or their leader is going to have difficulties, because that's democracy. But what about the use, though, generally, of um, uh, negative campaigning? I mean, Fine Gael, it wouldn't have a history of, of, of taking no prisoners uh, at some times. I mean, the rough and tumble of it, the high Fitzgerald period comes to mind. Also, laterally, uh, or maybe more recently, uh, in more recent decades, for instance, Brian Cowan, when he was Taoiseach, was the subject of some pretty robust criticism. Uh, one thinks of the tweet by Simon Coveney after an infamous Morning Ireland interview. Well, all I can say is not from me. Uh, I have huge admiration for Brian Cowan and what he did. Um, he, he took over in extremely difficult circumstances as Taoiseach. Now, he may, as Minister of Finance, have contributed something to that, but he faced up to it manfully. And uh, I wouldn't give any, um, any uh, airtime to any criticism of him. Was it that he did what needed to be done and did he make the job that Andy Kenny took on as his successor uh, in dealing with the, the big crisis, the economic crisis with the Troika and town and so forth, did he make that more doable? Yeah, well, first of all, he did what had to be done and that in itself is tremendous. Secondly, he did, as you say, by doing some of those things for which he didn't get any praise at the time, of course, he did make the incoming government's job somewhat easier. And it's interesting that Gareth Fitzgerald, who was writing at the time, acknowledged, uh, as I recall, that Brian Cowan did that. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are in government together now. Did you see a certain inevitability about that turn of events? Um, well, I didn't foresee the results of the last election. So in that sense, I didn't foresee anything inevitable. Uh, on the other hand, if you're faced with a parliamentary arithmetic that says the only government that is likely to pursue safe policies that will uh, solve the country's issues in a 
responsible way that will not inflame passions in northern in other parts of the island or between this island and its neighbour. The only option that seemed to arise at that time was a coalition involving Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. It wasn't easy for either of them to do this. It wasn't easy for the Greens either to join the government. I think they deserve great credit for doing it. Of course, it has created opportunities for others now, um, which they can seek to exploit. But I have no doubt that the Irish people in their mature judgment will see that it's better to preserve constitutional politics without any ambiguity than it is to take you know, radical experiments uh, which could lead the country astray. How then do you view the prospect of a Sinn Féin-led government or a, Sinn Féin, a, a, co a coalition including Sinn Féin? Well, I think there's a slight distinction to be made between one including and one where they're the biggest party. I think there's, that the latter is more difficult. Um, I don't see any problem, I think, with, with any party as such being government if they're fully transformed. But as I said earlier in the interview, I'm not sure that they have faced up to everything in their past. I'm not sure that their economic policies are ones that would not lead to penal taxation or excess borrowing, one or the other. And, I, and that's my concern. I think there are a lot of people in this country who are taxed quite heavily, who maybe could pay more, but there are an awful lot of people who are taxed quite heavily who could not pay more. And to have a, a party come into office that's talking blithely about big increases in taxation, which they won't probably be able to put into effect, and then in the absence of putting them into effect, they'll behave like the Tory party in Britain and say, well, we'll just borrow the money. That's not what Ireland needs. It may, it's not what Britain needs, by the way, either, but uh, it's uh, something that I, I, I would not like to see, and that's my opinion, that people are entitled to have another one. Is there a parallel between Sinn Féin of the 2020s and Fianna Fáil in the late 1920s, uh, transforming from a party that, is, that participated or included individuals who participated in, in violent activity. And to a certain extent, uh, there were people in your own party who had similarly got a record of, of uh, going out and, and shooting at people and taking part in the War of Independence. I mean, are they not just following the same path a century later? No, not at all. I mean, well, when Fianna Fáil was formed, it was formed as a party that was pursuing peaceful methods and there was no private army associated with it. Uh, until recent times, and I'm not absolutely sure about this, there has been a, a private army associated with Sinn Féin. We're told the IRA has gone away. We're, we're told. What does that mean? I, I, I have to analyse that phrase. We are told. By whom? Well, Mr what, Adams, for instance, who should be in a position to know, well, having gone to them pers to persuade them of the ceasefire. Well, he, he says he was never in the Army Council, so I don't know whether he can speak for the Army Council. I think there's too much ambiguity around that link between Sinn Féin and the IRA for me to be comfortable in light of the provisions of the Constitution about there being no private armies. I think that Sinn Féin would need to do an awful lot more to reassure constitutionalists, uh, constitutional nationalists, that this issue no longer existed. How do you see the future of the two parties that were the main part, the main parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, do you see them as separate entities continuing into the foreseeable future? 
I, in a way, I feel almost uniquely unqualified to answer that question because I'm a member of only one of those parties. I'm not of the other. I would love to see Fine Gael developing a constructive relationship with Fianna Fáil in the future, but that's not a matter for me or for Fianna Fáil. It's for a matter for Fianna Fáil if they want to. Um, so I'm not going to offer them any advice. On the other hand, I think it would be good for Ireland if they were to seek to be re-elected. I've said that at the time the government was formed. I'm saying it now, and I continue to hold to that view. Uh, but, you know, there will be people in both parties who might say that's not in our interests. I'm not going to fall out with them.